Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. The farm crisis of the 1980s dramatically changed agriculture and life in Iowa forever. You can still see the effects of the farm crisis when you drive through the countryside or through Iowa's small towns. There are also many changes that aren't easy to see, how the business of farming has changed, and it's even harder to understand the human toll the crisis took, the stress, the shame, the depression, violence, families breaking apart, and legacies lost. Pamela Riney Kerberg is Distinguished Professor of History at Iowa State University, and she has painted the whole picture in her book, When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. And she is with me now. Hello, Pamela. Hello, Charity. Thank you so much for being here today. And you start your book with one of the most searing and heartbreaking moments of this decade-long crisis. It took place on December 9th, 1985. Tell me what happened that day. Uh, on that day, uh, an Iowa farmer uh, shot and killed his wife as she was baking in the kitchen. And then he went to the bank in Hills and he shot a banker. And after shooting that banker, uh, he drove back towards his home and he shot at but missed a neighbor's wife and six-year-old child, but uh, killed the husband in that family. And after doing that, he drove down a road, parked, and then killed himself. Um, Dale Burr's dramatic, terrible action shocked Iowa. It shocked the United States and was symbolic of the real distress that many Iowa farm families were feeling in the 1980s. The event does just do so much to really demonstrate how desperate people were. And you share so many personal stories in this book. I mean, he he was certainly not the only farmer who was pushed to desperate actions or was feeling like he was at the end of his tether, obviously. And thankfully, most farmers and people in this situation did not turn to violence. But Tell me about the personal stories that you were able to access for this book, because you really were able to go to so many primary sources. I was the first historian to get into Terry Branstad's papers. There are 1,300 boxes of his papers at the State Historical Society in Des Moines. And with the help of the archivists there, I found boxes and boxes of letters written by farm people to Governor Branstad or Governor Ray or to the state's um, agriculture secretary. And they poured out their souls. They told in incredible detail what was happening to their farms and to their families, and they asked for help. And these letters were the most important source that I had for the experience of the 1980s, because these were ordinary folks, some of them right at the end of their tether, 
And you could tell just by reading that it was four o'clock in the morning and they'd been up all night worrying and that this was the only thing, the last thing they could think of to do to try and solve the incredible problems that their farms were facing. Right. They'd tried everything else. They had uh, some one woman had sent about 20 pages of details about every single meeting that they had tried to have or that they had had with bad results with their lender. Date after date, detail after date, detail, name after name. She just laid it all out there, essentially saying, what do I do now? I have tried everything. What do I do now? For people who don't remember or maybe have never understood what happened in the 1980s, let's go back in time um, because this crisis had been building since the late 1970s. What were some of the elements that started to build that led to this collapse? The two that were most important were changes, well, Let's not quantify this. Let's say there's several really important elements. One is that farm land prices had skyrocketed in Iowa during the 1970s. And some farmers who previously had not had very valuable land were now sitting on million-dollar farms. Uh, Another issue in the 1970s was really high inflation. And between the inflation and the skyrocketing land values, uh, financial planners were recommending to farmers that they do something with the equity in their farms, take out loans, and make a lot of improvements. And a lot of farmers did that, particularly young farmers. And that you know, that that was problematic, but it wasn't going to really hurt people unless something happened to the value of land and something happened to interest rates. And both of those things happened. Interest rates went through the roof. The United States was experiencing a long period of inflation, and Carter instructed uh, the Federal Reserve that the way to fight inflation was to raise interest rates. And at times in the late, very late 70s and early 1980s, interest rates went over 20%. Wow. There were all of these people who had all of these loans to improve their farms who all of a sudden were holding variable rate mortgages, the interest rates on which had gone through the roof. And that had the effect also of depressing land values. Land became a less desirable investment when you could put money in a CD in the bank and get a bigger return on it. And so the value of land plummeted. And basically across Iowa, it was between 60 and 66 percent in every single county. And that was the land that was the equity for all of these loans that farmers had. So all of a sudden, these farmers had loans with incredibly high interest rates that were secured by land that was now worth 
tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars less than it had been when they took out their, those loans. They had no equity now. And slowly but surely, lending agencies began to pressure them and began to demand repayment. Lenders were in trouble. And that led to a cascade of foreclosures for Iowa farm families. Of course, uh, everybody who pays attention to agriculture knows that uh, being a farmer is kind of a gamble on a yearly basis because when you plant, you don't know how things are going to turn out at the end of the season and you don't know what the prices are going to be for the commodities that you're raising on your land. So in addition to these unique factors at that moment, there was sort of the normal cycle of risk that farmers take on and things didn't go well there either, right? No. I mean, Iowa seems to fluctuate on a regular basis between drought and flood. And the droughts and floods continued. And farmers in Hamburg who were dealing with incredible levels on the Missouri River were also dealing with loans that were coming due. And so the normal wear and tear had this whole other layer of problems over it. And there were times when more than 60% of Iowa's farmers were in really serious financial stress. You mentioned uh, Governor Terry Branstad. He took office in 1983. So the farm crisis was already building and in a very real situation for many farmers in Iowa by that time. That uh, was also a time of extreme drought. I mean, you mentioned the floods, then followed the drought and the incredible heat. Yes. yes. And, you know, at th- there really, and there seemed to be no way to win uh, during that decade. Really, the only way to win was to be a very well-established farmer who did not have any debt and could ride out the ups and downs, the droughts, the floods, without having to deal with problems with a lender. And there were and that was a, a very small right. I was going to say there were a few of yep. those, but but just a very few. Right. And for one of the first times in history, we suddenly saw farm families going hungry because the way that the culture had changed meant that many of these farm families didn't have their their home gardens, didn't have their flocks of chickens, didn't have their, you know, their family dairy cow. Some of the things that historically had kept farmers and their families fed through tough times, that wasn't a part of, of life so much anymore. And suddenly farmers couldn't feed their families. That was one of the most startling things about the 1980s to many people, and indeed to me. When I started work on this project, I wasn't thinking about food insecurity, but I started looking at newspapers and then started reading, in particular, the records of women uh, who were farmers. And all of a sudden, I started noticing that they're talking about going hungry. And, you know, some of them did have gardens, but it was difficult to to raise enough to right. really offset um, the food needs these families had. Uh, these were not the huge gardens of the 1930s that a lot of families had relied on then. 
And then when it came to, you know, uh, people would say, oh, well, you could just you could just slaughter a hog. Well, no, you couldn't slaughter a hog if the bank held a lien on that hog. That would have actually it was been a, a crime. crime. Yeah. Yes. A crime to kill that hog. Pamela, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Pamela Riney Kerberg. She is a distinguished professor of history at Iowa State University and has published a book about the 1980s farm crisis. It's called When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. I know a lot of people who listen to Iowa Public Radio have very clear memories of that time. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can give us a call, 866-780-9100. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa. PR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about the farm crisis of the 1980s. A new book called When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s paints a comprehensive picture of what was going on on family farms and all over Iowa, really all over the nation during that time. Pamela Riney Kerberg is here with me, a distinguished professor of history at Iowa State University. And uh, Pam... I- you felt compelled to write this book because you didn't really feel like there was much else out there that really took a look at such an incredibly important and pivotal moment in our history. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, is there a lack of, of resources to understand what happened? There's not a whole lot out there that historians have done. Uh, most historians really feel like there has to be at least 20 years between an event and their writing about it before it becomes history. And it had been it had been 30. There was a book written during the farm crisis that had some pretty good information in it, but it was written during the crisis without the benefit of hindsight. Uh, some sociologists had also written some articles about it. But there was no history of Iowa during these years. And really, there's no, not yet. I mean, some people are working on it. There is no national history of the farm crisis. And if you look at books about the 1980s, it gets about one line. Hmm. And that's it. Which is stunning for those of us who live in the Midwest, which really got the worst of it during those years. Absolutely. And even as, uh, you know, I I grew up during that time. I grew up uh, mostly in Cedar Falls, Iowa. I didn't know all that many farmers, but you just knew all the time. You knew what was going on. And maybe we didn't fully understand what was going on. But I mean, even even the bumper stickers during that time, I remember the, the bumper sticker that read the last one out of Iowa, turn out the lights. I mean, there was this sort of over overwhelming sense of crisis all the time. It was really oppressive. (laughs) You could just, I could just tell by looking at the newspapers, by looking at these thousands of letters, 
by looking at these documents that were left behind by activists, even looking at high school yearbooks, you could tell that this crisis was seeping into every corner of the state. You mentioned high school yearbooks, and you write about a couple of yearbooks, but one in particular from Harlan, Iowa, where the students decided to to take on the farm crisis uh, head on in their yearbook. Tell me about that. It was an amazing yearbook. Uh, A former student was working at the Shelby County Historical Society, and I went to look at their yearbook collection, and he handed them to me. And I looked through the stack, and I found one that had on its cover the words, something's missing, which made me think, hmm, this is is interesting. This is not your usual yearbook cover. And I opened it up, and the first picture was of an empty hallway in black and white in Harlan High School. And every, well, practically every single page, every single story in that yearbook was about the farm crisis. The editor had decided that this yearbook had to be about something more than Harlan High School's perennially strong football team, that that wasn't enough, and that in this year, they had to write something more significant. And so they went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which used to do, I don't know if they still do or not, uh, a yearbook workshop, a week-long workshop, and they went and they spent a whole week figuring out how they were going to tell the story of their community. And it's heartbreaking because these are, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds looking at their community and saying, I, I can't live here anymore. You know, my, my friends are leaving, the school's losing teachers this is so depressing. I don't know if I can live with this. And they had a refrain throughout the the whole book of you decide. They would present a, a set of depressing facts about what was happening. And then they would say to their fellow students, you know, what should we do about this? What is happening? You decide. Wow. And What ended up happening was that an awful lot of them, including the yearbook editor, eventually left. She lives in Maine now. I found her. I tracked her down. Um, And, you know, this yearbook, I, I had wondered, did teenagers really absorb what was happening? Did they really understand how serious this was? And the answer very clearly was yes. Teenagers did understand, they were deeply affected, and they left behind the evidence of just how hard this was for them. When we think about that time, one of the the images that comes up a lot are the auctions. When a farm was foreclosed on, there would be the auction. And and those were the kinds of things, the events that, that made the news accounts frequently There were, though, some really extraordinary moments at those auctions where neighbors would show up to, even at that point, try to protect the family or even save the farm at that moment. Tell me a little bit about what was going on, that that sort of 
really grassroots protest and support movement that took place at some of those auctions? The Iowa Farm Unity Coalition, which was an umbrella organization for lots and lots of smaller farm groups, had an auction team. And if a family requested it, they would send a team to the auction, they would pass out black armbands, and if someone took a black armband, it meant that they were there to support, but that they would not be bidding. And they would circulate through the crowd, try and encourage people not to bid or to make very, very low bids. And they were, they, they could be pretty disruptive. There were some auctions that had to be canceled because the bids were so low or there were so many people there to protest. These weren't violent protests. They were, they were peaceful protests. But people came to show their support of the families. And there were people coming from out of state. Uh, a lot of protesters came down from Minnesota and from Wisconsin to go to these auctions and to show their support. And they didn't often manage to keep the auction from happening or the farm from being sold, but they wanted to, wit to be a witness to what was happening to the fact that this was a forced auction, that this was not the choice of the family. Uh, they'd wear their black armbands or they'd carry a white cross to show that they were not bidders, that they were there in a support capacity. So if a family didn't want to be alone in this, there was this network of people who would show up and provide support. What could they accomplish? Because as you mentioned, that often didn't actually stop an auction from happening. But by keeping the prices low, did that give some families the opportunity to purchase some of their own implements back and then things like that? That did happen in some cases. They did manage to get low enough prices that they could purchase back their equipment so that they would have the opportunity to start again. I think probably what was even more important was that this put political pressure on the State House, uh, but also on um, Iowa's congressional delegation to keep all of this at the front of their minds. Not that it wasn't. I mean, Iowa's congressional delegation was very committed to helping farmers, but this kept pressure on so that uh, over time, they managed to get uh, legislation that made it easier for them to, to fight for their farms and to keep their farms. I'm talking with Pamela Riney Kerberg about her book, When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. And I do want to talk about legislatively the, the response, especially in those first five years or so. Reading your book, it, it made it seem like the response was pretty muted and slow. Is, is that an accurate take? Yes, Absolutely. I think in the early portion of the crisis, it was a little bit difficult to tell the difference between what was going on in the 1980s 
and business as usual for farmers. Agriculture is an up and down business. Farmers are constantly under one sort of stress or another. And so there were a lot of people who thought, well, you know, farming's always in trouble. This is just business as usual. And if you didn't really dig down and look at the numbers and look at who was affected, you would have thought business as usual. And it's really only in about 1984 when things go into high gear and when people begin to realize, no, this is not business as usual. In particular, extension really kicks into gear about 1984, the the Iowa's Cooperative Extension Service, which provides aid to farmers. Um, And that's when Extension figured out that this wasn't business as usual and that they were going to have to change how they did business to try and help farmers. When Extension really got into high gear in response, they had a a response line people could call and and ask for help, talk about their situation. They had experts who would try to talk them through the the financial issues that they were facing. And of course, Extension has always offered agricultural advice and help. But when they kicked it into high gear, there was a a somewhat political moment where the group that had been offering that support and help independently was cut out of this effort. Tell me about that moment and and what it meant. Well, the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition had been running its own helpline for a number of years. They had gone, I think they had gotten to business in about 81 or so with their volunteer helpline. There were farmers who were sitting up all night answering calls, and they hadn't gotten any aid from the state. But in 1984, Extension decided that they wanted to start a helpline, and they did get money from the state. And... They were very, the the Farm Unity Coalition people were very angry about this because they had asked for help. They hadn't gotten it. Eventually, they did manage to get a small amount of grant money from the state for their line, but nowhere near as much as Extension got for the uh, Rural Concern Hotline. And I talked with with David Ostendorf, who was uh, the head of Prairie Fire. Uh, which was one of these really important activist groups in the 1980s. And he said that he ended up being uh, actually regretful about having taken state money because the reporting requirements took so much time that it really wasn't worth it. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, it was really discouraging to have extension get into the business of providing a crisis line in in 84 and them getting aid that the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition hadn't gotten. And that that was a very upsetting moment. Uh, But it was a a deliberate moment. Um, The governor said that he wanted the primary line to be the extension line. And they didn't really believe that nine times out of 10 that people would get different answers from the different lines, but Extension had worked with the state, had was affiliated with the university, um, 
was supposed to be politically relatively neutral, whereas the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition was left-leaning, and so they wanted the money to go through extension. Well, speaking of the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition, uh, Betty is on the line in Ankeny. And Betty, your brother was involved in that coalition? Hi, Charity. Um, Yes, he was indeed. And I just, I want to thank the professor for writing the book. Um, I was in my 30s during the 80s. I'm almost 70 now. And my frustration since that time is that so many generations have no idea what life was like then. And you try and describe it to them, and they don't quite get it. And um, it was such a massive change for the state of Iowa. Thank you, Professor, for starting to document this and um, so that it's history. It is the history of Iowa. And, yes, my brother was an activist. His name was Dixon Terry. And um, uh, so I was able, through his, through his eyes, to, to understand a little bit better what was happening. And, and my, my parents and he himself all went through that crisis and, and lost a lot. Um, but I was always very proud of him for turning his um, frustration into action. And people like Dave Ostendorf and so many others that committed hours and hours to help the Iowa farmer. So, yes, uh, the crisis was life-changing for many and and life-changing for Iowa. Betty, thank you so much for calling and sharing that. And and your brother is an important part of this book. We'll talk more about his role um, in just a few minutes because we're going to have to take a break. But also, he died so suddenly and so tragically. I'm so sorry, Betty, for your loss. That must have been such a terrible time. It was a very difficult time. And um, obviously, in such an unusual way to die, it was his time to go. But there was so much um, work yet to be done that he was so committed to. And um, the professor was talking about documents that she'd come across. And as I helped his wife and and his mom um, clean out his office after his death, you know, finding some of those things that he was in the middle of writing at the time he died, we've kept those (laughs) Uh, because they're history. And um, I'm just very proud of his work very proud. So thank you, Charity. Yeah, thank you, Betty. And and Pam, I'll give you an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, his role in the farm activist movement in just a moment, but we are going to have to take a short break. So we'll be back. I'm talking with Pamela Riney Kerberg. She is a distinguished professor of history at Iowa State University and has published When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about the farm crisis of the 1980s. And Pamela Reine Kerberg, a distinguished professor of history at Iowa State University, has published a really comprehensive historical and, and personal look at the farm crisis. It's called When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. It brings together uh, the historical factors that played into the farm crisis, but also elevates the personal narratives, the voices of Iowans who really struggled and suffered during this time. And Pamela, uh, Betty called us from Ankeny just before the break, and she was talking about the the activist work of her brother, Dixon Terry, who you write about uh, quite a bit in the book. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about him and, and some of the incredible work that activists were doing. I am so glad that she brought up the name of Dixon Terry because He was one of a group of farmers who started meeting in southwest Iowa early on in the crisis, and they were the core group that really created the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition. And Dixon Terry uh, really was at the front of that group. And not only did he bring farmers together here in Iowa, he took the word to Washington Uh, He was incredibly well-known, and he was pushing for uh, agricultural policy that would allow more small and medium-sized farmers to stay in the business. There was a whole lot of work to be done around that issue. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, he was hit by lightning while making hay and died, and when that happened, In a lot of ways, it took the heart out of the activist movement here in Iowa. When I talked to David Ostendorf uh, about all of this, who worked very closely with him in the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition and through Prairie Fire, he said that, you know, this was a moment from which really that movement did not recover uh, because Dixon Terry had been such an important part Uh, such a a ball of energy, and his loss was overwhelming to those uh, who were in the farm movement in the 1980s. We're getting a number of emails, and you're welcome to join the conversation at 866-780-9100 to share your story. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And this email, I'm going to read an excerpt from it um, from JW, and I think it also illustrates just how incredibly... Close to the surface, this time and and all of the controversy surrounding decisions that were made is for a lot of people in Iowa still. And uh, Pamela, I'm sure that you encountered this. But GW said, do not lay this debacle upon the head of the Carter administration. It started with the Nixon administration and Earl Butts exhorting farmers to buy, buy, buy farmland, take out loans and plant fence row to fence row. My dad was on the board of the National Farmers Organization through the 1970s and was active in Prairie Fire and the National Farm Unity 
coalition in the 80s. He often got calls from farmers who were very close to going after the banker or putting a bullet in their own heads. My own dad fought to keep our own farm and did it mostly through sheer will and tenacity and the unity of our family. Case in point, our small local bank was absorbed by a larger local bank. The buyers bought the loans for 10 cents on the dollar, promising to help the farmers who were struggling to repay their loans. They turned around and immediately demanded full payment. This happened all over the Midwest. Individuals taking advantage of the situation, choosing greed over long-term community stewardship. And uh, Pamela, I mean, I'm I'm sure that you talk to many people and the pain is still so real and Mm -hmm. present. And I should have mentioned Daryl Butts in the beginning um, and the idea that farmers needed to get big or get out. And a lot of people still feel the pain of having done what the USDA told them to do, what their advisors told them to do, what the bank told them to do, which was to get big and then suffered the consequences of it. Uh, You know, under one set of circumstances, taking out those loans and trying to get big made a lot of sense. And then under a different set of circumstances, suddenly it made no sense at all. And there's still a lot of pain that people have remembering those years and remembering their troubles. We have this uh, question from Rita. Does the book address the role of our elected officials in D.C. in solving the crisis issues or contributing to it? Charles Grassley was serving at this time. How is his role viewed years later? And you you do write quite a bit about what was going on at the state level and what was or was not going on at the national level through the majority of this crisis. We already talked about how there wasn't much response really until about 1984, 1985, when people realized, oh, this is this is real, this is enduring, and this is bigger than something that we've experienced since the Great Depression. But um, we can't we can't get into all of the decisions that were made. But you do point out that there were some some pretty incredible moments of bipartisanship during that time. That is one of the things that really impressed me was how much Iowa's political leadership worked together to try and solve the problems they are facing. And I found this really amazing document. It was the script for a public service announcement. And the three speakers in the public service announcement were um, Terry Branstead, Chuck Grassley, and Tom Harkin. And they were all saying exactly the same thing which was, if you are hungry, you should not be ashamed. You should get help. You should apply for food stamps. You should go to the food pantry. This is a situation where Iowans are going to help Iowans, and we are all in this together. And it just struck me as this amazing moment where people who, who on a number of issues— probably did not agree, but on the issue of people needing to take care of themselves and take care of their families, they were absolutely in agreement that they, that, that they needed to do what they needed to do and not be ashamed about it. And, you know, that, that was a pretty big thing to say in the 1980s. It's a pretty big thing to say now. 
Although sadly, and a lot of people real... did feel that shame. I mean, a, a lot that's, of families just right. couldn't ask for help or yep. wouldn't. Many families who needed the help did not ask for it or only took it for a short time um, and did not continue to get aid even though they needed to because of the incredible burden of shame that people felt over their poverty. Let's go back to the phones. Laura's on the line in Des Moines. Hi, Laura. Laura, are you there? All right, we can't hear Laura. I will share with you what what she wanted to talk about. She said she grew up in independence and her dad was part of the huge John Deere layoff during the crisis. And as a result, they moved from town to town to chase jobs. And you do write about all of these ripple effects in the book. I mean, (laughs) we could spend three hours talking about the many ripple effects. I grew up in Cedar Falls. Many people got laid off from John Deere there. And I had family members in small towns in Iowa that just almost started to look like ghost towns. The main street, the stores closed because there there just wasn't enough money, wasn't enough income to keep them going. I mean, so many parts of Iowa life were transformed. Tell tell me a little bit more. People don't understand how things changed, but about the right. the far-reaching effects of this crisis. It wasn't just a farm crisis. Iowa also, you know, made its living by manufacturing agricultural goods. Well, you know, farmers in distress can't buy those. And so there were huge layoffs at John Deere. Um, There really were not any companies that were particularly healthy. Uh, Those high interest rates also hurt small town businesses and, and larger town businesses and farmers who had no money in their pockets couldn't go into town and buy the things that they'd normally purchased. And so the unemployment rate in small towns soared at the same time as there were farm people needing to get jobs off the farm. And it seemed like every direction you turned that the hurt was was still there. One of my former students uh, had had been living in Florida, and her parents decided they had to move back to Iowa because, you know, there were aging grandparents and, and they needed help. Well, they got back to Iowa, and there were no jobs. And so her father had gone from being, you know, relatively well set, you know, having a good income, to having nothing at all. And they hadn't expected that. Because, of course, none of this was getting publicized very well outside of Iowa. And that sort of, that sort of horrible ripple affected practically the whole state. The business of farming has changed so dramatically as a result of the farm crisis. You even asked, did the farm crisis ever end? Because the the way that farmers had to adjust to doing business to be profitable during the farm crisis has influenced the way that at, at least conventional farmers continue to do business today. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it did wipe out 24% of the farms in this state, which were then absorbed by neighbors, for the most part, that got larger. Uh, Farms are much larger as a result of what happened in the 1980s. 
farms are less diverse. Uh, going into the crisis, the vast majority of farmers not only grew row crops, but also had some kind of livestock. Well, a lot of the livestock farming gets wiped out during the 1980s. Um, and what increasingly happens is that if people want to grow hogs, want to raise hogs, that they have to go into a contract arrangement with uh, a packing plant in order to do that. Um, a whole generation of young farmers didn't become farmers. The age profile of farmers changed radically. The number of older farmers grew significantly. A lot of kind of middle-aged farmers and young farmers lost their farms. A lot of middle-sized farmers lost their farms. But then young farmers became a far smaller proportion of the people in agriculture in this state. And either their dads lost the farm and they didn't have anything to inherit, or their parents decided, my kid's not going to go through this, and they discouraged them from going into agriculture. Or the young person themselves looked at what their parents were going through and said, uh-uh, I am not going to do that. And I remember reading this letter from um, an elderly man, an elderly farmer, writing about his family and saying that his his high school-age grandson wasn't planning on going into, into agriculture. He'd watched what had happened to his dad, and he was going to be a lawyer. And this elderly man, looking at his family enterprise disappearing, said, what a waste. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've talked with a number of extension people who say that uh, they're more likely to find uh, a young farmer today than a you know a fifty year old maybe a sixty year old farmer today because that whole generation of young people decided uh uh-uh, uh not going to do this or else they didn't get the opportunity to go into farming which was often what they really wanted to do and of course many small towns around the state of Iowa have never recovered. Many families have taken different routes, although, uh, you know, uh, you point out that the, the younger farmers who got out of farming tended to bounce back better as far as adjusting mm-hmm. to new careers and, and finding different directions to go. We know that so many marriages were lost. And we know that you talked about farms getting bigger. Uh, we talk a lot about the loss of these family farms during that time. And I realize that that the majority of farms in Iowa are still family farms. But there were so many more family farms, so many more families in our rural areas, so many more families going to the local school and going to the grocery store that's in the small town. I mean, it just transformed the face of this state in a way that, that will have repercussions forever. Uh, Pam, what do you want people to take away from reading this book? Because I I do, I mean, you've seen it in your classes. A lot of people living in Iowa today just have no real understanding of what happened. I think I want people to understand why (laughs) their parents and grandparents won't talk about the 80s. Um, I want them to understand that that decision-making 
in high places does have an effect on the way rural Iowans live their lives. Uh, I want them to, I guess I, I would hope that as the state continues to change, that it will be thoughtful change and that it won't be change forced by disaster. You know, what is so sad about the 1980s is that this incredible change happened and it was forced on a lot of people. And I really would, I, I, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, an awful lot of change is forced change, but I hope people will think about the 1980s, think about what their state wants to look like, and then think about what needs to be done to make Iowa the kind of place where they want their children and their grandchildren uh, to live and grow. Pamela Riney Kerberg, thank you so much for this book, and, and thank you for this conversation. Well, thank you for letting me come on Talk of Iowa Charity. Pamela Riney Kerberg is Distinguished Professor of History at Iowa State University. Her new book is When a Dream Dies, Agriculture, Iowa, and the Farm Crisis of the 1980s. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Follow us uh, on Facebook. You can also get in touch with us anytime through our email, talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And subscribe to our podcast. Search for Talk of Iowa wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Charity Nebbe.